Well, good morning, friends. We are starting, as Randy mentioned, our series in the book of Daniel this morning. So uh, if you've never <clears throat> stumbled across that before, open your Bibles to the halfway point. You'll be in Psalms. Go to the right a little bit, past the book of Ezekiel. You'll get to the book of Daniel. Uh, what I want to do uh, here at the outset, I want since, since this is a new series, I want to give a little bit of orientation to the book as a whole. Uh, and, then, and then our task will be to zero in on chapter one specifically this morning. So uh, the first thing I just want to consider with you is why are we doing the book of Daniel now? So why, why now? And Kenny explained uh, that in some measure last week during our reading service, a significant part of the reason for taking up Daniel now is in light of our recent series in the book of Jonah. So at the end of 2023, before Advent, we went through Jonah, and Daniel uh, pairs with and offers in some ways a nice contrast to the book of Jonah, doesn't it? So Jonah, for example, is told by God to go and warn his enemies, and he was reluctant and even bitter to do that. Daniel, on the other hand, is told by means of exile to settle in and stay a while and, uh, and bless your enemies as best you can. And there were lessons to be learned from God's faithfulness amidst Jonah's what we might call a negative example, and now there are lessons uh, to be learned from God's faithfulness amidst Daniel's very difficult situation, and despite that difficulty, a positive example. So uh, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, you know that this book unfolds in 12 chapters, and those 12 chapters nicely divide into two halves, and the book is written in two languages. The first six chapters, chapters one through six, we might call these the, the little stories about Daniel and his friends. Uh, these are perhaps the stories that are most famously known. Uh, you've got the fiery furnace and the lion's den. Those are coming up in uh, weeks to come. And then the second half of the book, chapters seven through 12, uh, we might call this Daniel's visions of the big story of redemption, right? The final outcome of redemption. And, and to, to just so everyone's aware, we're, we're not going to preach through every chapter in the book, but the broad takeaway linking these two halves, I think, is that all of the merciful deliverances of God in the little stories in the first half of the book, those are foreshadows of God's merciful faithfulness to His people in every era that follows that, ultimately on His way to ushering in the greatest deliverance of all. It's good news, isn't it? God's faithful in the little stories, your little stories, and the big story. So it may help to give uh, just a quick uh, snapshot, excuse me, of a couple of the structural parallels in the chapters that are going to receive our main preaching attention, just to kind of give the lay of the land. So chapter one, which is our focus today, is going to kind of set the stage, and it's going to point out some of the main themes to be covered in the book. Then after that, there are a series of, of sort of parallels. So uh, chapter two has some instructive parallels with chapter seven, uh, dreams making up the, the bulk of those two chapters by Nebuchadnezzar on the one hand, Daniel on the other. And these dreams both point to the eventual humbling of all kingdoms except for one. Then chapter three and chapter six have instructive parallels. Uh, we could call these the stories of righteous sufferers and resurrection-like deliverances. In chapter 3, that's deliverance from the fiery furnace. Chapter 7, from the mouths of the lions. 
And then chapters four and five tell parallel stories of two kings that are humbled. There are different responses to their humbling, but the humbling of two kings. And on from there, uh, the chapters in the book go until you get to the end. And the rest of the book uh, following these, these chapters really unpack the emphasis of God reigning over everything, even when it appears that he does not. In the final chapters of the book, that reign is shown chiefly by means of visions that God gives to Daniel, in which uh, proud kings and kingdoms are deposed, and ultimately God exalts the kingdom of his Christ. So when we meet Daniel uh, upon his exile in chapter 1, he and his friends, these, Jewish, these, are, these guys are Jewish teens, probably nobility, and by the end of the book, Daniel's most likely in his 80s, having outlived all the Babylonian kings and having had visions of all the world-dominating kings that were to come after these fellas, going by the board as well. So exile, right? That's a prominent theme in the book, isn't it? It's a, it's a major backdrop to what's going on here. And, and the notion of exile, it provides a good point of comparison with our own experience of living in a kind of exile, doesn't it? Now, to be sure, it's not a one-for-one comparison. We are not ourselves literally in Babylon having been cast out of the city of David as a result of judgment for sin. But it is also true that following Genesis 3, exile from Eden for sin, every child of God lives in a kind of exile, right? We ourselves, we are pilgrims in whom the gospel has already blossomed, but Christ's kingdom has not yet been installed in its fullness. So even in the church today, we live in a kind of status where this world is not our home, even as we are ambassadors of the good news of the heavenly city. Lots of passages in Scripture attest to this. Hebrews 13, 14 would be one. But into that exilic context, I think the goal of the book of Daniel is to press home the assurance that God is sovereign, to put it perhaps as C.S. Lewis would say it, that Aslan is on the move, despite present appearances, right? So this book has the intent of helping us learn and resolve, like Daniel, to bless the city of man without surrendering allegiance to it. It offers a picture of being in the world without being of it, doesn't it? And that's not a bad plan. But at the same time, we also know, sometimes we feel deep in our bones the struggle to obey God when it looks like he's not in control. And we are experiencing the griefs of what we might call exilic living. So how do we do that? How do we resolve, like Daniel, to live faithfully in dependence upon God when it doesn't look like God is in control? Where does faith like that grow? What's the soil of that kind of trust? Well, um, there will be a number of uh, good things, I think, to, to add to the mix as we go. But, but since this is the, the introductory sermon to the series, I want to give what, what at least I think might be the central application point of the entire series right here at the outset. Now, if I'm wrong, my superiors will correct me in weeks to come, but, but we're going to try this out. Okay, um, so the fuel for this kind of living faith is found in coming to know more and more deeply that the assurance of 
our greatest deliverance has come as a result of Christ's victorious endurance of a greater exile on our behalf. Let me say that again. Our assurance, somebody was saying amen. Our assurance of greatest deliverance comes as a result of Christ's victorious endurance of a greater exile on our behalf. That's something that you and I see more clearly even than Daniel could see, right? Now, to be sure, Daniel had his foreshadows and he had his handholds. You get the stone next week in chapter two. You get the fourth figure in the furnace in a couple of weeks in chapter three. The son of man in chapter seven. But we know with greater clarity how Jesus Christ was plunged into the exile of God-forsakenness for our sins so that you and I might never know that kind of exile. And not only may we avoid that kind of exile, but we may instead come to enjoy being the objects forevermore of God's redemptive delight. We praise God for that, right? We praise God that Jesus voluntarily entered into the outer darkness of God-forsakenness as our substitute. And we praise him that the, the final exile of the grave could not hold him. And friends, that means that if you're in Christ, the grave that couldn't hold him cannot hold you either. If we will commit ourselves to savoring this very good news, you might find faith growing even in dark places. And if you don't yet know Jesus like that, our desire is that you would walk out of here this morning being able to say that you do. So if you're in a position where you go, that sounds nice, but I'm not sure that I know him like that. Please talk to someone on your way out. We would love to pray with you, to encourage you, to uh, point you into then the direction of some next steps to take even, okay? I think that's where this series is going. All right, <clears throat> chapter one. So <clears throat> chapter one then gives us the setup of how these young fellas came to Babylon and ultimately into Nebuchadnezzar's service. And, and as we make our way through the chapter, we're gonna, we're gonna work our way through the entire chapter, what I'd, what I'd really like for you to flag is what I think is the drumbeat of the chapter. Three times we're told in chapter one, we're given some version of the statement that God gave, or the Lord gave. He gives different things, but God gives. We see this in verse two, we see this in verse nine, and we see this in verse 17. And I think the point of this is that in a situation where it appears that God is not sovereign and indeed has been defeated, right from the outset in chapter one, this expression is being used to help us see, one, that God is on the throne, but more than that, he's the main actor moving this story forward. God is the operating agent behind the action, even when it appears that he may not be. So let's dive in. We're going to look at uh, Daniel Chapter one, uh, three primary chunks, beginning, middle, end, uh, setting, uh, climax resolution, you know, however you want to think about it. Our first chunk comes in verses one through seven. Daniel one, chapter one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah, there's your first God gave, by the way, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he, that's Nebuchadnezzar, brought them to the land of Shinar 
to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. All right. So as we see, we see in other passages, 2 Kings 24 discusses this as well. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem here. This is 605 BC. It's in fulfillment of prophetic judgment. And what's described for us in Daniel chapter 1 is actually the first of three waves of deportation to Babylon. So Daniel and his buddies, these Jewish teens, um, they were taken in the first wave. And that's kind of strategic, right? If if you take the, the nobility, and, and you see in verse 4 the, the description of these guys, the best of the best, if you take the cream of the crop, if you take the future leaders out of Jerusalem and you try to press them into the Babylonian mold, that both will make Judah weaker and Babylon stronger, conceivably. And we're told that these, along with some of the vessels of the temple, were brought to the land of Shinar. Now, those with, with good uh, Old Testament antenna are going to recognize the land of Shinar, right? That's where, that's where the citizens of the earth back in Genesis 11 tried to build the Tower of Babel, did build the Tower of Babel, a tower to the heavens to make a name for themselves. It's one of the, it's one of the, um, one of the earliest expressions of the attempt to build the city of man independent of attendance to God, <clears throat> right? So it's understood these canonical echoes, it's understood to be a place of arrogant opposition to God. You recall way back then that kind of in a, in a sarcastic expression, God has to go down to see their tiny little temple, right? And then, and then scatters and, <clears throat> and disperses them, foreshadows of things to come. But here, these young men were subjected to three years of training and reprogramming, and the goal was to erode their... Jewish identities and replace them with Babylonian identities that's seen in the giving of new names, uh, teaching language, new, new languages, new trades. The Babylonian names, of course, were given with reference to the gods of Babylon, whereas their Hebrew names had been given to them with reference to Yahweh. Naming's not insignificant. We'll see how the story ends in a bit. <clears throat> but it's a total program of state-sponsored identity erosion and identity replacement. And that sets up the question for this chapter and, and really for the book more broadly, again, what do we do when it looks like God's not on the throne? So it's very significant, isn't it? Here's the first of the three drum beats. It's very significant that in verse two, we get this statement, God gave, namely God gave Jehoiakim and Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Here's how one commentator put it. He said, a modern historian would say that Judah fell because it was overpowered by the most powerful nation on earth. A Babylonian priest 
would have said that the powerful gods of Babylon simply overpowered the God of Israel. But our text gives us a totally different perspective. The Lord gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. In other words, this is an initial reminder. That's the end of the quote. This is an initial reminder that contrary to appearances, God's the one in charge here. Even in Babylon, somehow in exile, God is working out his redemptive plan. So that's the setting, right? <clears throat> After that, we get in our next chunk, we get the, the main tension in verses 8 to 16. Verse 8, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. All right. <clears throat> So amidst all of this uh, re-education, reprogramming, Daniel resolves in verse 8 not to defile himself with the king's food and drink. And, and to be sure, right, this resolve, it's an expression of his unwillingness to be collapsed into Babylonian identity, right? And it may well have been because the food was ceremonially unclean, could have been that concern, may well have been because the food was plausibly and probably sacrificed to Babylonian idols. Uh, some uh, interpreters think that the concern here is that sharing the king's fare in particular would symbolize a kind of bond of allegiance between him and them. Others <clears throat> consider that, that maybe it's just Daniel realizes he's got to draw a line somewhere. If he goes along again and again, consuming the pleasures of the king's food, he has the foresight to know that may eventually dull his ache for God. Maybe all of the above. I'd be, a, you know, I, I, I certainly think that's probable. In any case, <clears throat> the issue about refusing the king's food was significant enough that Daniel resolved not to eat it regardless of what the cost would be for him. And there was a potentially high cost to be feared, wasn't there? Like, the chief eunuch in verse 10 is afraid of the king's wrath that may come as the result of refusing the king's food. And we see a little bit further on in chapter 3 that Nebuchadnezzar's wrath, fearing that, was justified. Right? You could lose your head, get thrown in a fiery furnace. So, <clears throat> while God gives favor, we see this for the second time, God give, right? In this case, he, he, he gives favor to Daniel in verse 9. While God does that, Daniel had no guarantee about how this was all going to go down when he made his resolution 
that God was worthy of his ultimate allegiance regardless of the outcome, right? So what we learn from this resolve on the part of Daniel, we learn that he will serve in Babylon, but he won't abandon his identity as a child of Yahweh to do so. Here's how another commentator put it here. They, Daniel and friends, didn't refuse to answer to their Babylonian names, but they did maintain their Jewish names and identities as well. Daniel did not become Belteshazzar, even though he answered to that name. In other words, Daniel lived by the meaning of his Hebrew name, which is God is my judge. <laughs> now, in the, in the book broadly, what happens here in chapter one, it's, it's really only the first test of Daniel's resolve, right? Uh, as the book goes on, Daniel and friends are going to be tested time and again, and the fruits of their resolve will be shown time and again. In fact, I would argue, I would argue that it's Daniel's trust in God, regardless of outcome, in this matter here in chapter one, that gives rise to his courageous trust in days of seemingly greater trials, like chapter three and chapter six. And I would also say that just like chapter one stands in back of the courageous trust in chapters three and six, it's equally true that King Josiah's reforms, who was the king under whom these guys grew up, those reforms stand in back of the courageous trust and display here on chapter one. You, we don't have time to talk about Josiah. You can read about him in 2 Kings uh, 22 and 23, the reforms that he cultivated in, in uh, Judah. It would be, be well worth your time to do that. But in back of Josiah's reforms stands what? Recovery of the book. Recovery of the book of the law, probably Deuteronomy, right? Recommitment to being people of the book, what's the point? If you want to stand on days of critical mass, then what matters is the character that is sown bit by bit in the days prior to the test. If you want to stand on the day of the test, what matters is the character that's sown in the days prior to the test. Because tests like these do not create the conditions of the heart. They just reveal them. The test does not create the condition of the heart. It merely reveals what's already there. So, how is it with you? The pressure to conform our identity to the spirit of the age has been present in every post-fall culture, right? May it take different expressions, but it's always there. Are you resolved against bowing the knee of idolatrous allegiance regardless of what it may cost? Moms and dads, how are we doing today at preparing as best we can our kiddos for the future trials of identity suffocation that they will face? Maybe in some cases already are. This makes it a wonderful, right? It's just it's, it's so encouraging to be at a place like Grace where the children's ministry is giving such great assets in that area. Of course, parents have a primary responsibility, don't they? Are we helping the next generation to understand and form their identity in Christ by the primacy of 
the book. The cost varies from culture to culture, but the point is that in every culture there is a cost. There's a cost to saying Christ first and foremost. But the point, in part, of the book of Daniel, at least by way of foreshadow, is that Christ is totally worth it. Yeah? Okay, now, for all that resolve and the fact that God gave Daniel favor, did you notice that Daniel still asked permission? Like, he made his resolution, and then he asked permission not to eat the food. So what's up with that? On the one hand, on the one hand, he's definitely not accepting assimilation, right? But he is shrewd in trying to work within the system as much as possible. We may wonder, well, like, what if, what if Daniel's series of appeals had finally ended with a flat no? You can't do, you can't eat anything else, you got to eat the king's food. I, it doesn't say for sure. It seems, it seems clear to me that his resolve indicates the answer of what would have happened then, but, but I think more importantly, what also seems clear is that Daniel is proceeding based on his confidence in God's sovereignty. And we see his, his, his venture in faith in God's sovereignty, not because he has a promise, not because he has a guarantee, but he expresses his trust in God by asking for a test that can really only pass if God intervenes, right? If God supernaturally, so like, you know, they probably weren't doing BMI tests and in other words, absent the intervention of God, a 10-day vegetable eating test is probably to the naked eye gonna show few observable results. But when it's obvious after 10 days that these guys are healthier, fatter in flesh, so on and so like, like it's, that, that's, a, that's a pretty, uh, helpful confirmation of, of God's favor. We see it again in verse 15. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate <clears throat> the king's food. God is, as we're coming to expect, he is the one who is moving the story forward, isn't he? And yet, Daniel's resolve is a rather remarkable expression of faith. So, and, and, and certainly he would be pressured to, to, to doubt this, but Daniel is, is refusing to operate <clears throat> as if God is not present because they happen to be in Babylon and not Jerusalem. Daniel is deeply convicted that God was not defeated by the Babylonian deities and that God's presence, <clears throat> excuse me, is not regionally restricted. He acts, as we've seen, on the meaning of his name, he acts on the conviction that God's approval matters most. And once again, we see the result. Daniel will serve the king as one under allegiance to Yahweh, but not as one under allegiance to the false gods of Babylon. And that brings us finally to the resolution of chapter 1 in verses 17 through 21. Verse 17. As for these four youths, <clears throat> God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters 
that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So, so we see here, <clears throat> excuse me, the confirmation of God giving favor on these youths. This is our third expression of what, God's, what God gives. In this case, he gives learning and skill and wisdom, and to Daniel in particular, understanding of dreams and visions, which becomes a matter of significance in the rest of the book, doesn't it? So the first major outcome, which we see in verses 18 to 20, is that three years now after the training began, they are met, these four youths are met with extraordinary favor in the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar. But did you notice in verse 19 that when that favor is reported to us, it's done so with the use of their Hebrew names? Did you notice that? I think that's just a tiny little hat tip, right? Pointing to the fact that three years after this attempt at at reprogramming, their identity as followers of Yahweh has been successfully retained. We get another fascinating hint. Like, just, you just get, kind of get some gestures in chapter one. But another fascinating hint of the overarching outcome in verse 21, when it almost reads like a throwaway line, but we're told that Daniel served until the reign of Cyrus, king of Persia. That's going to come about nearly 70 years after Daniel's exile. At that point, a remnant will return to Jerusalem according to the decree of Cyrus. And at that point, Daniel, who came, as we mentioned, to Babylon in his youth, will be in his 80s. There's a massive hint at the outset of the book that Daniel will outlast Nebuchadnezzar and all of his Babylonian successors, guys who appear during their time to be the ones who hold sovereign sway, right? As it turns out, that will prove not to be the case. The occupant of the throne changes again and again and again throughout Daniel's lifetime and beyond in the visions that he has going forward. But there's only one throne. There's only one kingdom that remains undeterred and unconquerable. So let's see if we can drill down into a few takeaways, shall we? Uh, To begin with, Uh, The antipathy of exilic culture, as Daniel makes clear, does not mean that God is not in control, does not mean that God cannot be trusted. That's one of the key takeaways, I think, for us. Um, We are are appointed as ambassadors of Christ, aren't we? We didn't choose our own times, and in our times, we must inevitably stand against the grain of culture at various points. There are times when we will do that 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 will not be appreciated, right? But our ultimate allegiance is really not contingent on what any current Nebuchadnezzar may think. So it would be wise. It would be wise to resolve now that when that day comes, we will choose allegiance to Christ, even if it costs status, standing, pay raises, promotions, social capital, or worse. But it's also true that we stand against the idolatrous pressures of the age as ambassadors of mercy for the sake of the lost. Let's throw one example out here. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield is well-known for warning and pointing out that the promises of the sexual revolution in its many various expressions 
are bankrupt from the outset, right? Um, they cannot hold the weight of personal identity, though they promise to do so. And, you know, there's no shortage of her committing to warn people against going down that path. Don't, don't go that way, the bridge is out, right? But at, at the same time, in, in another perspective, she's also uh, deeply committed to saying that because we have an advantage, right, as, as the people of God, like we have the advantage of knowing that sin is always uh, leaving a trail of broken promises. We know that on the backside, sometimes we know from our own experience, don't we? We know that on the backside of that, there will be the bitterness of regret in the embrace of things that were not true. And she argues, in addition to, you know, making the, the warnings as appropriate, she, she, she also argues that it's very aroma of Christ-y to be the kinds of people that are ready to receive the people on the back end of their regret, picking up the broken pieces of their lives with the good news that we know one who can bear the weight of your identity. Right? That's, that's being for uh, the lost, even as... It's an expression of refusing to blend in. Well, let me offer a couple of means, three in particular, that might help us fan the flame of the resolve that we will need and that we see from Daniel again and again and his friends in this book. And it's important to think about the means of grace that can fan this flame in the power of the Holy Spirit because mere, mere resolve and mere exertion cannot account for it. It can't account for 80 years, right? In order to do this for 80 years, it needs to be fueled. It needs to be nourished by better promises that lay hold of better treasure. So here's one. <clears throat> I mean, the fact that you're here tells me you already kind of get this point. We desperately need one another in the body of Christ to help strengthen our resolve in these weekly gatherings that among many other things are a gathering for detox, right? I mean, there's more, than just, there's more than just that. There's some programming, as it were, that gets weeded out in our gathered worship. Quote uh, uh, one commentator a bit at length here, who put it this way, we cannot preserve our heavenly identity on our own. Left to ourselves, the pressure of the world will inevitably crush us into its mold. But together, we can help one another keep the memory of heaven strong. We remind one another of our true citizenship when we gather week by week in our homes and in our churches. In our church services, our goal is not simply to be equipped for more effective lives here on earth, but also, or even more, to be reminded of the heavenly realities that truly define who we are. In other words, in our gatherings, we help one another to grow more sure and more certain of the one who made us and the one who redeemed us. So let me just, you know, give a plug. Um, these gatherings are uh, essential, I think is a good word. Uh, but let me give a plug. Uh, next Sunday is a baptism service. Next Sunday evening is a baptism service, and we routinely have Lord's Supper services on the first Sunday evening of the month. Those would be wonderful celebrations to prioritize, right? Um, they are visual proclamations. They're visual reminders of who you are. 
and they are given to us because we need those reminders. If we're not fanning the flame of who we are together in Christ, we will not have the fuel to run the race of faith that we have been called to run. Second, in addition to our corporate gatherings, let me just point back to uh, our most recent sermon series. It was the Abide series from John 15. It was a two-sermon series. And it just, you know, if you, if you weren't here for it, you, I, I'd recommend you go back and, and check it out. What it emphasized were, were the twin themes of relying on the word and prayer as the basic recurring rhythms that get the sap of the vine or the life of the vine into the marrow of our souls or the branches. Of, I mean, like, pick your metaphor, right? But, you know, sap comes from the vine, and, and these, are the, these are the rhythms. Even in our non-gathered moments, right, in between Sunday to Sunday, we need to be people of the book and people of prayer. And third and finally, <clears throat> I want to end with what was perhaps our overarching point. Though we are in an exile of a kind, we are in a better position than Daniel to see and to rest in the saving sovereignty of God as we make our pilgrimage home. And how was that? Well, the things that we've just mentioned, the book, prayer, gathering, they help us meditate on the truths that Jesus came to Babylon, a greater Babylon, if you will. And he sought the welfare of us, its citizens, kind of along the lines of Jeremiah 29, 7. Jesus didn't withdraw, neither did he compromise faithfulness to God. Instead, Jesus embraced his identity as the Father's beloved Son, even at the point of enduring exile to the uttermost of God-forsakenness. For that, <clears throat> he was then and will forevermore be exalted, and in him is installed the only kingdom that is both permanent and indestructible. May God enable the picture of that deliverance to soak into our marrow and give you and I strength to trust him for this day and every other day. Let's pray. Jesus, we bless your name for enduring the outer darkness of God-forsakenness that our sins deserved. Lord, would you increase both our love for our enemies and our resolve to worship you above all and to worship you alone. Would you grant us wisdom to bless without blending in this week? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.